This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your guide, Peter Korchnak. Yugoslavia lives. It lives among other things in the architecture and infrastructure built during its existence. Buildings, roads and monuments from the Yugoslav era keep that country and the memory of it not just alive, but an integral, if sometimes invisible, part of everyday experience in Yugoslavia's successor countries. The same goes for my native Czechoslovakia and its progeny. But the two countries also live on in a more poetic way, an ocean away on an island at the edge of the North American continent. And it's a rather unusual building in that it was designed and uh, built for the Yugoslavian Expo 67 pavilion in Montreal. It was only a decorated shed, but it could show artworks in a better way. It was presented as a great success in Prague. After they served their representative duties as Yugoslavia's and Czechoslovakia's pavilions at the Expo 67 World Fair, both buildings were repurposed as cultural institutions in small communities on the island of Newfoundland. There was this kind of apocryphal tale about a, about a ship uh, stranded off the coast that ended up not only being wrong, but instead referring to a completely different pavilion. It's gone to a place where no one would think it would go. I mean, the buildings in Newfoundland, who would have think those buildings would end up in Newfoundland? The two former pavilions nearly disappeared from a map the same way the countries they once stood for had. But scholars and artists have been breathing new life into them, keeping them alive in the cultural sphere as well. The idea was to rebuild the form of the pavilion, but as an illusionist device. In today's episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, the afterlife of two disappeared countries at the end of the world. But before we travel to Belgrade, Prague, Montreal and Newfoundland, remember that it's you who makes all of this gallivanting and storytelling possible. Thank you and welcome new Patreon sustainers Alexander, Garrett, James and Michelle, and thank you David for your generous contribution. Remembering Yugoslavia is a one-man labor of love. If the stories and analysis you hear here twice or more a month enrich your life in any way, please consider supporting the show and me in making it with a donation. Visit rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate and contribute today. World's Fairs are large international exhibitions where countries showcase themselves. A precursor exhibition was held in 1791 in Prague, but the concept really took off with the 1851 London World's Fair. After the Second World War, World Fairs acquired a more cultural and nation branding bent. Countries used expos to project an image of themselves along the lines of a given theme. It's kind of like this international stage where you can go and really show the world who you are as a country and your architecture and your art and your heritage. That's Donald Niebel, a friend of the show and the man behind Spomenik Database, where in addition to socialist monuments, he explores other aspects of Yugoslavia's architecture. It was an article on his blog that alerted me to the continued existence of the Yugoslav and Czechoslovak Expo 67 pavilions. The whole sort of culture of these world fairs and world expos is kind of forgotten about it at this point. I mean, when's the last time that you heard any real discussion or, or news about, about world expos occurring? Even though, they, even though they do still occur, they're largely marginalized these days as any cultural iconic event. In the 1950s and 1960s, the Second World War was in the rearview mirror, economies around the world boomed, and science and new technologies brought about a sense of optimism about the future. Man went to space, people jetted around the world in airplanes, new medicines saved millions of lives, television and satellites and computers were ascendant. In this golden age of futurism, life promised to be easier, safer and more comfortable. 
As much as a thing of the past techno-futurism is, expos are still being held, albeit to much less fanfare. Expo 2020, rescheduled due to COVID, is actually underway right now, in Dubai, through March 2022. All the successor countries of both Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, plus Kosovo, are among the 192 countries participating. The 1967 edition of the World Fair took place in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. It was the second post-war global exhibition after Brussels in 1958. It was seen as a wonderful opportunity for Canada to uh, showcase itself uh, and also invite the world to Montreal. Kevin McAleese is a curator of 25 years at the Rooms Provincial Museum in St. John's, Newfoundland. More on that later. On a man-made site in the middle of the St. Lawrence River, an estimated 50 million will have visited the largest World Fair ever. So in some ways it was almost like a miniature Olympics, except that people weren't uh, competing with sports. They were presenting their own country's history and culture. Organizers built one and enlarged another island on the St. Lawrence River to host a six-month event. 62 countries, some of Canada's provinces, the state of Maine, and a number of industries and corporations participated in the expo. The theme, Man and His World, reflected, to quote an official press release, a feeling of belonging to the community of man and an awareness of the basic unity of mankind. Here's the whole world in colorful miniature. All the pavilions have exciting differences, but over them all there's exciting oneness, a common denominator that is human and welcoming. Expo 67 was also about innovation, technology and progress. Among the most architecturally interesting pavilions was the American one, comprising a geodesic dome designed by Buckminster Fuller. Canada's exhibit included the Habitat 67 housing complex, a blocky modular structure. Both structures are still standing and are in use on site. Perhaps this expo, if we're smart enough, if we're imaginative enough, will not only point out the problems of our time, but may suggest some of the solutions to them, how we can form a better society. That's the inspiration behind Expo 67. And inspiration is followed by creation. The artist can take iron and make it express the spirit of his world. Expo will tell the story of man the creator of sculptures and symphonies. Man the explorer of stars and cells. Man the producer of power and pizza. Man and the community. Man and his world. The Montreal Expo itself, if you just look at all of the architecture, it looks like you stepped right into the Jetsons. And I still to this day can't believe that place ever existed because it just seems like something out of a, out of a dream, out of someone's imagination. Fun, fantasy and fact, Expo has it all. Expo is geography made human. And it's history too, with a sideshow attraction. Expo 67 doubled as the main event of Canada's centennial. Writing in the Montreal Gazette to mark 50 years since Expo 67, Arthur Captainus asserted, The fair brought citizens of the world's second-largest country together more successfully than had any peacetime enterprise. Expo transcended the divisions by linking the dream of a united Canada with the dream, then prevalent despite or perhaps because of the Cold War, of a united world. We celebrate the most successful World's Fair of the 20th century not as an impressive relic, buried in the past, but as an expression of the human spirit that today remains both viable and essential. We should all carry a little expo with us. It is so much better than the alternative. Expo 67 is, was and will be an unforgettable and perhaps significant global experience.
It was a time of optimism, a time when everything seemed possible for the city, for the country, reports Tutan Ha in the Globe and Mail. The quiet revolution had changed Quebec into a forward-looking society. There was a construction boom, gas was cheap, people believed technology would create a society of leisure. It was also Montreal's first exposure to the rest of the planet. In 1967, Newfoundland and Labrador had only been a province of Canada for about 19 years. Up until then, Newfoundland and Labrador had been uh, a dominion of the uh, British Empire and of the Commonwealth. So in 1967, some Newfoundlanders and Labradorians had never been off the island or outside of Labrador. And uh, a younger generation, so to speak, that was keen to travel went to Expo 67. And in a sense, it was um, discovery for Newfoundland and Labrador to see how wonderful being part of Canada could be. People were quite amazed and quite impressed with all the pavilions at Expo 67. So in a sense, the Yugoslav and Czech pavilion, they kind of represent that 1960s optimism that isn't really so visible today in both uh, Newfoundland and Labrador and in Canada. I'm joking when I say it, it isn't the gladiators and the, and the circuses of the Roman Empire, but there was a really wonderful optimism and a really wonderful kind of uh, discovery that was going on by many people in the country when they got to Expo and they saw just so much diversity in the world and everybody was very so very proud of their own cultural backgrounds. So in, the, in that sense, it was kind of like a miniature United Nations, a giant party that went on for months and months. And people today still talk about how wonderful it was to go to that exposition. Expo 67 was, according to Inderbir Singh Riyar, perhaps the most consequential 20th century World's Fair in terms of the utopian hopes of modern architecture. The expo would irrevocably shape the ways in which Canada confronted its collective sense of cultural representation and global belonging. Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia won the Golden Star for its pavilion at Expo 58 in Brussels. The restaurant part of that pavilion is now located in Prague. So expectations were high for Czechoslovakia's participation at Expo 67, and the country was in fact the first socialist country to sign up. Only three other socialist countries participated at Montreal. Cuba, Soviet Union and Yugoslavia. Eight million people visited Czechoslovakia's pavilion, which made it the fifth most visited. The most popular pavilion was the Soviet Union's, with 13 million visitors. Czechoslovakia's was ranked in the top three of the most impressive pavilions, and the restaurant in the Czechoslovak pavilion ranked fourth in sales volume at the Expo. I'm from Montreal. I'm originally a Quebecer, and uh, I went to Expo 67, and uh, I know there were long lineups to get in that pavilion because of what they had inside. We couldn't get in because the lineups were like three hours long. They went right around the building. Robert Lodge is the former manager of the Gordon Pinson Center for the Arts in Grand Falls, Windsor, Newfoundland. More on that later as well. In the mid-1960s, the Communist Party-led regime in Czechoslovakia was loosening thanks to reformers who ascended through the ranks on the platform of socialism with a human face. Culture opened up as well. The process culminated in 1968 in the so-called Prague Spring, which saw the Expo 67 Czechoslovak Pavilion's commissioner, Miroslav Galuška, become the Minister of Culture. Czechoslovakia, after the Second World War, used the world first as an important tool to demonstrate the ruling socialist ideology and also to develop economic ties and so on. So the exhibition was the main instrument of state propaganda. 
And in the exhibition in 1967, uh, we can see a strong faith in a modern form of socialism and a strong optimism of forthcoming Prague Spring. Terezia Nekvindová is an art historian at the Academy of Fine Arts in Prague. She wrote her doctoral dissertation about Czechoslovakia's 1967 and 1970 Expo pavilions. The whole atmosphere was was optimistic that Czechoslovakia was a modern socialist uh, state which want to show that this kind of socialism is modern and is uh, good for people and everything is okay. Maybe interesting thing is uh, that Václav Havel, later our first president after 1989, was part of the team who wrote the first draft uh, of the exhibition concept. It wasn't accepted in the end. They were um, maybe uh, more um, experimental and a little bit naive because they didn't know <laughs> how to um, behave in this field. They wanted to make a big iron curtain <laughs> there in, in the pavilion and, and so on. And I talked uh, to him in, in a cafe. <laughs> it was nice. It was very nice. He told me that I know more than him. So <laughs> not only about the Expo 1967. <laughs> Ironically, though on the architectural front, the Expo's chosen theme and to replace the particularist focus on the nation with the humanist, cosmopolitan, universalist focus, countries like Czechoslovakia still went in with a propaganda angle. Czechoslovakia also brought in the spies. The State Security Service, Statni Bezpečnost, established a residentura in Montreal to prevent pavilion staff and visitors from Czechoslovakia from emigrating. A counterintelligence officer was the deputy general commissioner at the Czechoslovak Expo office. The exhibition had one unforeseen impact because it helped to promote the good name of Czechoslovak artists and architects, uh, some of whom emigrated to Canada after August 1968. Some um, people told me that it was much more easier for, for them to come as an emigrant to Canada in 1968 because one year before Czechoslovakia had a really good, good name because of Expo uh, 67. The Czechoslovak pavilion was designed by Miroslav Žepa and Vladimir Picha, whose design was chosen out of 92 entries in a public competition. It consisted of two rectangular structures, basically two boxes. The bigger one had a glass-encased ground floor to display glassworks and other objects that required natural light. A series of vertical panels covered the bigger second floor, which housed the audiovisual exhibits. The architecture wasn't innovative at all. Postmodern architect Robert Venturi wrote in his book Learning from Las Vegas that uh, he visited Expo 1967 and it wasn't interesting <laughs> for him. He called the Czechoslovak pavilion a decorated shed. So <laughs> there is almost no architecture, but it's a platform for these audiovisuals and to show the art. It was only a decorated shed, but it could show artworks in a better way. Across a terraced yard, a smaller building, again with glass all around, housed the restaurant. Its western facade reflected the U.S. pavilion's geodesic dome. Content over form dominated Czechoslovakia's pavilion. 
meaning it was what was inside that mattered more than the container wherein it was presented. The main reason for the popularity of Czechoslovakia's Pavilion at Expo 67 was the multimedia exhibit featuring Kino Automat. This was the first interactive film in the world. It was one of the greatest attractions of the pavilion. One Man and His House was an interactive movie where audience could vote in which way the main hero should act. The main hero is Mr. Novak, who lives in a modern house in, in Prague. And he has a neighbor who, who is nice, blonde, uh, almost naked woman who doesn't have keys from her apartment. Please, will you help me, Mr. Novak? Can I come in for a minute? Why? I haven't any clothes on. The wind blew my door shut and I can't get back in. How awkward for you, but you must understand my position. I'm afraid I can't help you. My wife will be home any minute. It's her birthday and I... The film paused in nine plot junctions and a moderator, the actor portraying Mr. Novak, appeared on stage to prompt the audience vote. And so people should vote if he let her in uh, his flat or not. To let her in, to refuse let her in, leave her in the corridor, she'll be alone. In an awkward situation, and with no clothes In on. a towel. In a draft. What would you do in my place, huh? You are in my place. Every audience, except a group of female Catholic students, voted for Mr. Novak to let his neighbor in. Stop! Stop! It is 33 to 81! <laughs> But the story always returns to the same end, to the same outcome. The end of, of the movie is that the whole house is in flames. And <laughs> the funny thing is that it was interpreted as a, a hidden satire on Czechoslovak socialist democracy that everybody gets a chance to vote, but voting never changes anything. <laughs> the film was later banned in Czechoslovakia. It was revived with multiple screenings in mid-aughts. There was also a lot of historical exhibits or artworks because uh, the country presented itself as a modern socialist country, but with a um, very rich history. So there were all also originals like Gothic paintings and Gothic sculptures or Baroque frescoes uh, and so on. It was presented as a great success in Prague or in Czechoslovakia. The August 1968 Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia and the ensuing normalization period diverted attention in Czechoslovakia to domestic affairs. The story of the pavilion's relocation was pretty much forgotten for many decades. Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia's pavilion garnered much less attention at Expo 67. Its location, in the middle of the island between the British and French pavilions, may have had something to do with it. Czechoslovakia's was right on the water. More likely, though, it was the pavilion itself. The Yugoslav pavilion had a lot to compete against, but it has outlasted and outlived all projections. Similar to Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia intended for its participation in the expo to, quote, enable a much better acquaintance of the Canadian public with Yugoslavia and influence the further development and expansion of international relations. But problems started early on. 
The design competition for the Yugoslav Pavilion drew 59 entries. The selection jury awarded the first prize to a recent architecture school graduate, 28-year-old Miroslav Pesic. The selection of this unknown designer generated some controversy. The design was said to be unambitious and, rather than architectural innovation appropriate for the venue, focused on price and convenience of construction. Ironically, of course, these aspects of the design later contributed to the building's longevity. And, because this was Yugoslavia, some charged Pesic was chosen because he was Serbian, while the runner-up, renowned architect and author of Yugoslavia's acclaimed Expo 58 pavilion, Vjenceslav Richter, was spurned because he was Croatian. The question here was quite simple. They basically wanted to have a different uh, nationality architect. Jasmina Sibic is a London-based Slovenian artist who did a ton of research on the Yugoslav Expo 67 pavilion for one of her artworks. More on that later on in the show. The government chooses a very young Serbian architect with a project which was, I mean, you know, you would, you would take a seven-year-old child um, to, to design something that has to represent six republics and one host uh, country, so seven entities, and um, that's probably what a child would come up with. So it was a very, very simple structure with seven triangular shapes. I mean, you know, it really looked like, I mean, especially compared to Richter's design, really looked like a joke. That was the pavilion that was realized. Uh, this poor young Serbian architect had a total breakdown, never did any other projects or significant projects after that. The project in Montreal didn't really work out. So they actually invited Richter to come and save the interior because this guy just failed completely. So it was this really interesting case study of this proper design by committee. The building of Yugoslavia's Expo 67 pavilion consisted of seven triangular white structures reminiscent of prisms sitting next to each other, some facing one, other the opposite way. They were said to symbolize Yugoslavia's six republics and Canada as the host country. In his interior design, Richter incorporated some elements of his runner-up design. For the seven million visitors, the Yugoslav pavilion presented, in the words of the official guidebook, Yugoslavs working for a democratic, prosperous society. The Yugoslav Pavilion endeavors to portray how, in the story of man and his world, Yugoslavia has adopted the special role of a bridge among all countries of the world. It relates a long and colorful history and ancient culture to the dynamic forward impetus of today. There is music to match mood and art displays including priceless national treasures and contemporary work. A section devoted to industry treats production not as an end but as a means for a free and democratic life. The close ties that link Canada and the United States to Yugoslavia are remembered, a comradeship that spans two world wars and years of peace. The Pavilion's theater shows feature films from Yugoslavia, documentaries and cartoons, live concerts and folklore programs by Yugoslav artists. Yugoslav export goods are on display and experts are ready to discuss business opportunities. Literature describing Yugoslavia is available. Culture, the country's role in international affairs, economy and tourism, social system and government are principal theme subjects. It didn't quite work out that way. According to Sibitz, the National Day, which each country organized at some point during the expo, turned out to be a disaster for Yugoslavia. Not only did it coincide with a Canadian national holiday, which depressed attendance, the government brought in a Croatian national dance troupe touring the U.S. at the invitation of the diaspora there and had them perform a kolo, a traditional dance that was, in terms of representation, a far cry from the progressive, modern image Yugoslavia aimed to convey. What's more, among people visiting Expo 67 were Yugoslav emigres who weren't exactly enamored, not just with the pavilion, but with the country itself. And they are attacking the pavilion. So the pavilion gets shot at, it gets attacked by hammers, sculptures get vandalized. They actually organized really big um, demonstrations 
where they were actually carrying a slaughtered pig with the name of Tito on it. I think it was Ottawa. And it's a really wonderful stand-in for, for the body of the president. So Tito and his delegates do not come to Montreal because the Canadian authorities did not allow Yugoslav secret police to come with a diplomatic corps. So then the Yugoslav secret police basically said to Tito, we cannot guarantee your safety. There have been many death threats. Expo 67 ended up being the last time Yugoslavia participated in expos. With Montreal, they kind of realized that this is just way too expensive and actually it's not reaching the objective that they want. So we really see a complete withdrawal from the presence at the World Expositions. And rather, uh, Yugoslavia starts to invest in building up monuments, kind of memorial infrastructure within its own ground to enhance and, let's say, heal the, the divisions that were starting to become really, really apparent. Expo pavilions and other structures have usually been temporary, built specifically for the event and dismantled afterward. A few iconic World Fair structures still stand. The Eiffel Tower from the 1889 Exposition Universelle in Paris, the Atomium from the 1958 Brussels World's Fair, or, closest to me here on the West Coast, the Space Needle from the 1962 Century 21 Exposition in Seattle. Both the Czechoslovak and Yugoslav pavilions were designed to be dismantled and sold. The governments of both countries accomplished that mission, and then some. So for us to obtain, the Newfoundland and Labrador folks, to obtain those two pavilions was in a sense quite a coup. The Czech government had a list of interested buyers, and on the first list, Newfoundland was the last choice. There was like, I think, 10 others. Robert Logigan from Grand Falls, Windsor, Newfoundland, population 14,000. Montreal Mayor Jean Drapeau wanted to keep the Czechoslovak pavilion on site, lock stock and the restaurant barrel, and share the profits with Czechoslovakia. But he only offered to pay a symbolic one dollar. Newfoundland's Prime Minister Joseph Smallwood had expressed a more concrete interest in both Czechoslovak and Yugoslav pavilions. Expo 67 was three weeks from closing when disaster struck. On September 5, 1967, Czechoslovak Airlines Flight 523 from Prague to Havana via two refueling stops crashed upon takeoff from Gander, Newfoundland. A lot of the people from central Newfoundland, first responders, uh, hospitals, etc., etc., went to the aid of this crash. Of 69 people on board, 37 died. The coordinated, multi-agency effort by the local authorities, hospitals and residents led to 34 people getting rescued from the wreckage. And in recognition of that, the building became available to the Newfoundland government. This is one version of the story. Czechoslovakia donated the pavilion building to Newfoundland as a token of gratitude for the locals' assistance in the rescue operation. Such a gift also helped evade paying the sales tax and customs fees. But Premier Smallwood later asserted the plane crash was unrelated and Newfoundland simply bought the building outright. But then again, the province purchased the pavilion for 230,000 Czechoslovak koronas, about the cost of a single-family house in Czechoslovakia. So there's that. The pavilion was disassembled and divided in two. Because Gander and Grand Falls had both sent people to help, Grand Falls got the exhibition area of the pavilion, and Gander got the small theater part and restaurant areas. They were very separate entities at the pavilion, so they were easily easy to divide. Kind of like the country, my country itself. I don't think Gander was officially open until 75. It took longer to open that one because, of course, the government kept running out of money. Gander, population 12,000, is about an hour east of Grand Falls, Windsor. 
The restaurant building of the pavilion serves as a swimming pool there. Named in 2005 after a famous Canadian actor who is from Grand Falls, Windsor, the Gordon Pinsent Centre for the Arts is a performing and visual arts institution with a theatre, art gallery and a library. It's in a government complex. It was recreated there or reconstructed there in, from 1968 to 1971. The building officially opened in 1971 as a performing arts venue and an art gallery. It's huge. It's all open. It looks just like it did at Expo, the building. It's all glass, all around the front exterior with the top part of the building. I'd say half is glass and half it's covered in. Lodge is the former manager of the Gordon Pinson Center for the Arts. It's a nice building to work in. It has a beautiful art gallery space. And the theater is a beautiful little intimate theater. I mean, it's great acoustics. And the fact that it's all windows, really hard to heat. <laughs> Especially in the winter. Not practical for Newfoundland winters, but uh, other than that, the space is a gorgeous space. The government has taken really good care of it, and they've updated things in the building, and the technology in the theater has been updated constantly. And so it's, it's in good shape, and it's in good hands. I was surprised that the facade is now covered by another facade made from plastic. Uh, the original was steel construction uh, filled with tiles. A lot of historical records were destroyed or lost after the 1968 invasion. Czechoslovakia's Expo 67 pavilion was nearly forgotten in its dual homelands. One of the surviving architects didn't even learn the story until the early aughts, when a Czech-Canadian scholar discovered the pavilion building was still standing. Soon after, Terezia Nekvindová contributed to the revival of the Czechoslovak pavilion's memory. I visited Newfoundland in 2008, and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I have to say that it was the most adventurous part of my research so far. I came there by a small plane, and <laughs> I, I was in uh, quite another world. I wanted to celebrate and drink a beer, but I had to buy the, the whole box, so I didn't buy anything. <laughs> Nekvindova worked with Lodge to obtain materials about the building's history. And very nice and moving was that a few residents still remembered Czechoslovak Pavilion on Expo 67, and, and they shared their memories from Montreal with me. I was really happy when, when I saw uh, these pavilions and I uh, found out that there are uh, also some works of art. Including some statues around the center lot and other artwork inside the building. Some of the artworks were included in the sale of the pavilion building. Many more were sold and scattered around Canada and the U.S. When he was manager, Lodge worked to gather as many pieces as possible back into their original site of the pavilion building. Some weren't discovered until this century, stored in boxes around Newfoundland. And I said, wow, Czechoslovak art is here also. And Robert, or another local person, told me, no, 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 it's Canadian. It, <laughs> it has always been here. But we were looking at uh, the sculpture from, from Czechoslovakia from 1960s. I was happy that they think that it's Canadian because it fits there. Also inside the building by the box office is... Something that I put together, it's a display that talks about the building, shows you pictures of the building, shows you pictures of where it was at Expo, like their aerial views, uh, maps of what, what was at Expo, lineups of people trying to get inside the building. So you get a reference point and, and there's text as well that explains the history, the lore and all that stuff. The story of Czechoslovakia's Expo 67 pavilion is one of socialism, innovation, business, tragedy, afterlife, discovery. It both makes sense and sounds completely implausible. It's gone to a place where no one would think it would go. 
I mean, the building's in Newfoundland. Who would think those buildings would end up in Newfoundland? I don't know uh, about Yugoslavian pavilion a lot, but I've heard from the widow of the Czechoslovak commissioner that these uh, general commissioners of Czechoslovak and Yugoslavian pavilion were very, very close friends. So maybe it had some influence why uh, these two pavilions were sold to Newfoundland. A five-hour drive from Grand Falls, Windsor, south as the loon flies, on the Berlin Peninsula, a.k.a. De Boot, is the fishing town of Grand Bank, population 2300, and home of another implausible tale. Through the jigs and reels of life, we have ended up with the former pavilion of Yugoslavia as one of our small community museums that features a lot of history to do with the fishing culture of Newfoundland and Labrador in the region known as the southwest coast, where there was a schooner fishery, a schooner ship fishery for about 300 years. Kevin McAleese again of the Rooms Provincial Museum. There isn't so much of a fishery there now, and the schooners are long gone. But we have this amazing building as our uh, memorial, so to speak. And it's a rather interesting story to think that a building designed uh, to represent the former country of Yugoslavia at Montreal's Expo 67 in Canada is now reinvented, repurposed as a fisheries museum, basically, in southwest Newfoundland. The building itself is, in a sense, uh, the biggest artifact in the world. While Yugoslavia's pavilion garnered relatively little attention from the architectural community... When our premier, Joseph Smallwood, got to Expo 67, he was so impressed with this building that he investigated what was going to be done with it after the exposition was over. Mr. Smallwood got involved with the uh, Yugoslavian government and um, put a bid in on it. And um, he, uh, along with one of his colleagues, Mr. T. Alec Hickman, they decided that this building was going to go down to Grand Bank, Newfoundland, because the prisms to them actually resembled the sails of the schooners that used to sail out of Grand Bank and all around the southwest coast. And they also wanted to develop, I'll say, a community museum for the reason region to boost tourism and for the community to have a center where they could come together and socialize and have uh, exhibits from around the country and basically teach young people as well as older people about the history of that area. So they wanted to basically turn the facility into a kind of a community cultural educational place, which is what it has become. It was dismantled in Montreal and then shipped and trucked to Grand Bank, Newfoundland, which is a distance of about, I'll say, 2,500 kilometers. And most of it was done at sea. And then it was deposited uh, on the shores of Grand Bank. Newfoundland bought the pavilion for a symbolic $1 after reimbursing an original buyer with the sum of $30,000. Like the dismantled Czechoslovak pavilion, it took a few years for the Yugoslav pavilion to be rebuilt. It uh, sat there from 67 <laughs> till about 1970 because they had to get the funding to put together the building after they had actually bought it. The rebuild cost about $1 million. And there was a bit of controversy in Grand Bank about why this pile of steel uh, was sitting on the edge of the shore and it wasn't being turned into a building as, in fact, they wanted it to be. So it took some political wrangling 
But eventually, construction got started, um, I'll just say late in 69, early 1970. And uh, in fits and starts, they put the building together. They put new cladding on it. They rebuilt it somewhat uh, inside out because some of the uh, materials had rotted or they weren't up to Canadian standards. And at one point, it didn't happen, but at one point, they actually were thinking before the building was completely closed up of trying to fit a small schooner into the building and then build the rest of the building around the small schooner. And the masts that would have been on the schooner would actually have had a good fit with some of the angular prisms because they were so high. The building is actually about four stories high, but the bulk of it is only about two stories. But the spires or the prisms reached to the sky. And so the masts of the schooner could actually have fit in there quite nicely. But in the end, they didn't do that. And um, then they opened it on September 4th, 1971. More than a thousand people attended the opening ceremony of the Southern Newfoundland Fishermen's Centre, later renamed to the Provincial Seamen's Museum. Reception to the building was mixed. Local news articles called it one of the most attractive buildings anywhere in Newfoundland, Canada, or even all North America. And some of the headlines said things like, would you believe that this building is in Newfoundland? Because it certainly didn't look like a conventional Newfoundland, traditional or even conventional Canadian architecture for the time. A more traditional Newfoundland building would be a rather square or rectangular building. An official building might be two or three stories and often uh, made of wood, or at least the houses, of course, were made of wood. Wood was a standard building material. But of course, in the um, 20th century, a lot of brick and stone were starting to be used. But this building was extremely unusual. In some ways, it was almost like a church from the medieval period, but with many spires, except they weren't spires, they were prisms. And they also clad it with new materials and painted it white. And a lot of locals liked it. But the local people who saw the building being constructed and who needed to have a large facility that could act as a community center and as a museum and as a tourism opportunity. Many of them were not happy when the building was built and constructed because they weren't really consulted in how it would operate. A lot of people thought it was just very strange and they just weren't taken by it. It didn't look like the kind of buildings that most Newfoundland people and Labrador people would ever have seen before in their lives. It was so strikingly unusual that a lot of people didn't even want to uh, spend much time going into it, although eventually, you know, that, that initial distaste for it passed. But they weren't really encouraged by the kind of programming that went on. The Provincial Siemens Museum is one of three museums operated by the Rooms, which is based in Newfoundland's capital, St. John's, about five hours east. The permanent exhibit is all about the local fishing industry and its heritage, featuring objects fishermen and fisheries have used since the 1800s. There was contribution locally for exhibits to be developed because some of the museum collection that's still there now actually was uh, obtained by local people donating fisheries objects. It's always had quite a fisheries history focus. There's, some, there's quite a few boats, small boats down there, the type that maybe two or three fishermen would use. There's a lot of fishing gear. There's gear from lighthouses. There's a lot of everyday objects that fishing families would have used. And about 10 years ago, a very large mural was painted on one side of the building 
depicting what life uh, would have looked like uh, about a hundred years ago. So there's period dress and period vessels and period people. And uh, the mural's getting a bit worn, but um, it looked fabulous when it opened and it wouldn't take a lot of effort to uh, brighten it up some more. The mural is said to be the largest painted mural on Canada's Atlantic coast. So it has become slowly something that the local people uh, and regional people can be proud of, but it certainly didn't start out that way. As with the Czechoslovak Pavilion, there has been some confusion about how the Yugoslav Pavilion ended up in Newfoundland. As far as I can tell, the story you heard is what happened. But there was another version in which the dismantled Yugoslav Pavilion was sent back to Belgrade. The ship encountered rough seas off Newfoundland and Grand Bank fishermen brought it safely to shore. Yugoslavia then donated the pavilion to Newfoundland as a thanks. The Montreal-based designer D.C. Hillier has written a short personal recollection of the building. I was born after Expo 67 had ended, but spent the first years of my life completely ignorant of the fact that I had been growing up with a rather large portion of it almost in my backyard. In my hometown of Grand Bank, Newfoundland, there is an odd building that looks like a cluster of white triangles juxtaposed in such a way as to create zigzag of points along its roofline, which was at its tallest about 70 feet high. Everyone just called it the Sandwiches, but it was in fact the Siemens Museum, a facility preserving the maritime heritage of the area. It wasn't until I was in the sixth grade that a teacher mentioned that this building was the old Yugoslavian pavilion at Expo 67. To my parents, the very mention of Expo 67 seemed very exciting, but it was a mystery to me. It was then that I became aware that I was not like my parents in that they had a memory I could not possibly have and that their experiences were not mine. My only connection to their knowledge and experiences of Expo 67 would be relegated to old family photos and Super 8 films and a rather odd building down the street. About 3,000 people visit the Provincial Siemens Museum in a normal year. COVID hit attendance hard, of course, with less than half the usual number visiting. School children visit it regularly from the region. It's not a fairly well-populated part of the province, but schools have bus tours and they bring children in. And tourism has been growing all the time since the 1970s in Newfoundland and Labrador. So there are more and more tour buses that reach the area while they're on tours crossing the island of Newfoundland. And so it has become something of a, a drawing card, as they might say. It draws on a larger hinterland and it draws on international tourism to boost those numbers. It isn't a real revenue generator for the province. It's like a lot of these things, you have to come here and, and see the province in a sense as a region, and then there's these little jewels that, that are uh, polished up in each region, which give the visitor a lot more information to do with historic occupation and settlement. And the other problem, in a sense, is that they close the museum down for a few months every year because the tourism in this province drops off quite a bit in the winter. They've just decided that to save money, they keep the building in good shape, but they don't actually operate it hardy at all. Um, they do open it up for conferences and they do open it up for special meetings on occasion. So it does get business clientele, but uh, generally speaking, it only operates about eight months of the year. The museum is closed for the season. As for the Yugoslav connection... I think the province as a whole is very proud that this building was purchased in a sense from Yugoslavia. But I think that as time has gone on, Many people who were around when the building first opened and who would have known more about how it came to be, a lot of those people aren't, aren't with us any longer. 
I think it's seen as kind of a quirky, interesting looking building. And people are happy now to have it because it does represent uh, a kind of a futuristic architectural character to Grand Bank. And I think the people are using the building more. And so I'm still of the feeling that the Yugoslavian connection is not as well known as it should be. And I think that the Canadian and Newfoundland public would benefit if they knew more about how the building came to be. And I think that whole interesting story isn't really represented as well as it should be. But again, you know, the building was repurposed as a museum to the history of Newfoundland and Labrador fisheries. And so perhaps it's not unusual to think that the actual building itself isn't seen so much as an artifact of Yugoslavia. The Yugoslav Pavilion in Brussels was also sold and that became a school. And it still is a school. And what is so fascinating is that they actually still have the word Yugoslavia on it. Artist Yasmina Sibitz again. And the, the principal of the school is like still kind of really aware of the significance of the building. So they still organize exhibitions and projects about the architect, about Yugoslavia, which is fascinating. And um, the pavilion um, from Montreal was bought and repurposed. And there's actually no trace that this was a pavilion of Yugoslavia. So it was completely repurposed as a different structure. To mark the Grand Bank Museum's 50th anniversary, McAleese put on an exhibit there about its history. In some ways, it's almost ironic that these two examples of, we'll call them socialist architecture, had a shelf life that went on for decades and is still going on. Including in Czechoslovakia, of all places. In 1974, a lodging resort was opened in Tatranská Lomnica for the meeting of the International Federation of Camping and Caravanning. The design of the accommodations units resembled the Yugoslav Expo 67 pavilion. 116 prism-shaped bungalows with alternating orientations, plus a reception, information center, two restaurants, a discotheque, a pool, and a sauna, comprised one of the biggest such complexes in the High Tatra Mountains. Whether the Slovak architect Eugen Kramar was really inspired by the Yugoslav pavilion's design, or the design was really as simplistic as Sibitz talked about earlier, is actually moot. Eurocamp was closed in 2009, and only ruins remain on site. Nation building is the act of creating a set of illusions which confirm and reinstate a common ground among citizens. In 2018, Yasmina Sibitz used the Yugoslav Expo 67 pavilion as a centerpiece of the conceptual work State of Illusion. Like any good drama, it does not only take place on stage, but in the minds of the audience. You know, this idea of art and architecture being used as a cloaking device, as a camouflage tactic, if you want. Sometimes, you know, it has to conceal, sometimes it has to reveal. Uh, it has to conceal the schisms, the frissons, the nationalism, and it has to reveal, you know, the beauty and the glory of the country and the achievements. And it's basically like a magician, no? So I kind of thought this is a really lovely metaphor of just kind of looking at the illusionist tactics and the scene setting that culture is called upon to act out in order to represent a nation state or transnational structure even. Each of the prism-like parts of the pavilion is reimagined on stage as a triangular skeleton structure on wheels. The idea was to rebuild the form of the pavilion, but as an illusionist device. So this was, this was then the film. And 
we went to film in Sombor, in Serbia, um, in a small theater. We filmed um, the triangular structures on the stage. So it's kind of, you know, this kind of notion of them being this illusion, the stage set is very, very clear. And then throughout this film, there are different tricks where the illusionist, who is a female, disappears in each of the boxes, but every time in a more violent manner until she completely disappears. And she is aided in this disappearance by three henchmen who kind of deviate from being her henchmen or her assistants into actually becoming the ones that cause her destruction. So this sort of metaphor of also, you know, sort of state bureaucracy that aids the illusionist or, you know, the architect or the artist and then kind of like creates or causes her own collapse is also there. So they're not uh, Milosevic, Tujman and Izet Begovic. <laughs> I really love to leave these things open because, you know, I work with, with so much facts and I really want to go away from creating didactic exercises. So I really, really, really want to leave space open also for, you know, different interpretations. You know, it's even if it is about the pavilion of former Yugoslavia, you know, it's not necessary that the audience knows this. You know, this whole idea of, you know, oh, you know, it's Yugoslav, former Yugoslav artists, or this is relating to this. And, you know, there's been so much of this need to know the trauma of the past to be able to unlock the artwork that I really want to go away from that. I mean, that's why, though, then we have the publications. And that's why, you know, I'm very thankful to you to kind of create this platform for discussion because of course these things are extremely important for the work but i do not want to go to that depth to say they are necessary keys to understanding the work sibitz's description of state of illusion says that the conceptual play on nation states as illusions points towards the fragile nature of their conception and survival and pours accent to the stagecraft mechanisms of spectacle which surrounds their presentation to the international spectatorship hungry for the populism of the growing nationalist tendencies and their destructive force it's quite a long form piece and it was actually really tricky to film. All the knives that are falling down are real knives. <laughs> so even if it is about illusion making tactics, we kind of, um, it was the first time we were making um, illusionist boxes and uh, we just did the real thing. So it was actually extremely traumatic to film and we were very happy that nobody died. <laughs> the idea was we will actually do it as a live show at some point, right? But um, yeah, we never quite got to that point, <laughs> but they are all real tricks. In my conversation with Yasmina Sibitz, we also discussed how State of Illusion fits into the greater context of her art, about architecture's role in nationalism, about being a Yugoslav woman, and other topics. This interview will soon appear in a bonus episode, available exclusively to Remembering Yugoslavia's Patreon supporters and donors. You'll be able to find it at patreon.com slash rememberingyugoslavia. It is kind of quite a universal, university relevant story. And it's it's just so fascinating how, you know, we're looking at the kind of whole, you know, patriarchal structures that everybody, or not everybody, almost every autocrat first wants to build. <laughs> it's almost this kind of sacred possessions of building. And it's really, it is quite incredible how drawn humanity is toward constructing these edifices of representation.
When I first read the story of the Yugoslav and Czechoslovak pavilions at Spomenik database, I thought, how poetic. Both Yugoslavia's and Czechoslovakia's Expo 67 pavilions, showcases of countries that ceased to exist a quarter century later, ended up operating as cultural institutions in the place called Newfoundland. I was quite excited about that. I mean, the two disappeared countries live on on a faraway Canadian island whose name connotes discovery. How great is that? The residual nostalgias I feel about my two homelands, one real, the other imagined, sailed across the ocean and into the buildings I've never seen and perhaps never will. As I dug deeper and deeper into the story, things took a prosaic turn. It's not just that the more I learned, the more of a historical account the whole thing became. The ship of Theseus was preserved in ancient Athens to commemorate the hero's accomplishments on the battlefield. As years went by, parts of the wooden ship had to be replaced until soon every part had been replaced. Was the restored ship the same ship as the one that had docked at Athens decades prior? If the ship were rebuilt from the original pieces into a ship, would the reconstructed ship be the original ship? What of the restored ship? I used to be on the side of the philosophers who held that the restored ship was indeed the same ship. This was my starting point with the story of the pavilions. They're the same buildings, using most of the original materials as well as some replacements. But regardless of whether the restored ship of Theseus was the same as the original or not, its meaning was the same, it signified the same thing. It would have remained the same even if the original had been dismantled, transported elsewhere and rebuilt there. Unless they turn it into a taverna or something. The two pavilions may both contain a little exhibit on what they used to be and how they arrived to their current coordinates. But not only is what they stood for gone, their function as showcases of those countries is gone too. Almost the same looking and consisting of many of the original parts as they may be, they are different ships altogether. Illusions indeed. Next on Remembering Yugoslavia. He was like uh, queer amongst the communists and he was like uh, queer for the West because he was communist. A sea of ink has been spilled on tracing the life of Josip Broz Tito. At least a dozen lengthy biographies tell the story of the man, the partisan, the communist, the statesman, the symbol. But what story can we tell about him from the food he ate, the clothes he wore, the company he kept? On the next episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, Josip Broz Tito in the eyes of others. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information, sources, and the transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com podcast. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petrich, soundbites and additional music used for educational purposes courtesy of British Pate, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Czechoslovak Television and Yasmina Sibits. Additional music by Petar Alargic licensed under Creative Commons. Special thanks to Vladimir Kulic and Yasmina Tumbas. I am Petar Korchniak. Ciao!